This program is presented by Birch Gold Group, the precious metal IRA specialists. Good morning. In today's headlines, after eight months and 126 formal interviews, the Supreme Court said it has failed to discover who leaked draft of the court's opinion overturning Roe v. Wade. A frivolous lawsuit. That's what a federal judge called former President Donald Trump's case against Hillary Clinton. And he handed out a nearly million dollar fine to boot. We took a look at the House Oversight Committee, both at the assigned members for the new Congress and what the plan to investigate. Nearly 440 pounds of chemicals, suspicious packages from China. Federal agents in Arizona seize a potential fentanyl precursor after a months-long investigation. With the Chinese Lunar New Year approaching, line dance is an important part in celebrating the holiday. We meet an artisan who keeps the ancient craft alive. Good morning. Welcome to NTD. I'm Kevin Hogan. Good morning. I'm Evelyn Lee. Today's Friday, January 20th. The Supreme Court has failed to identify who was behind the leak of a draft version of the ruling that overturned Roe v. Wade. That's a conclusion of an investigative report announced yesterday. We will not obey! Campaigners staged rallies across the country last year after the blockbuster leak we will not obey! of a Supreme Court draft ruling overturning a decision legalizing nationwide abortion. But a report released on Thursday looking into that leak isn't naming names. It said it couldn't figure out who leaked the Roe v. Wade draft after an eight-month investigation. News outlet Politico published it in May, sparking an internal crisis at the court, which has a 6-3 conservative majority. The leak marked an unprecedented violation of the court's tradition of confidentiality in behind-the-scenes processes. At the time, Chief Justice John Roberts called it an egregious breach and directed a Supreme Court marshal to investigate. The report says none of the 97 court employees interviewed by investigators confessed. The report did not make it clear whether the justices were interviewed. Computers, networks, printers and logs didn't turn up any forensic evidence either. Conservative Justice Samuel Alito wrote the draft opinion. The final one that came out in June was almost the same. It upheld a Mississippi law banning abortions after 15 weeks of pregnancy. Several Republican-governed states moved rapidly after the ruling to enact abortion bans. Thursday's report comes at a time when opinion polls show the public is losing confidence in the institution. According to a recent Reuters-Ipsos poll, only 43% of Americans have a favorable view of the court. A federal judge sanctioned former President Donald Trump and his attorneys yesterday. He ordered them to pay nearly a million dollars in fines. This for suing former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton. They claimed she tried to rig the 2016 presidential election by falsely accusing his campaign of links to Russia. U.S. District Judge John Middlebrooks says the sanctions were warranted. He says the former president has exhibited a pattern of misusing the courts to further his political agenda. The same judge threw out Trump's lawsuit in September. The judge says no reasonable lawyer would have filed it, adding that it was intended for political purposes. Judge Middlebrooks was appointed to the bench by President Bill Clinton in 1997. 
In 2019, special counsel Robert Mueller found there was no collusion between the Trump campaign and Russia after a nearly two-year investigation. Defendants in the lawsuit also included some of Clinton's top advisors, the Democratic National Committee, and former FBI Director James Comey. Trump is gearing up for his 2024 election campaign. He's reportedly planning to return to Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Actor Alec Baldwin and a weapons specialist will be charged with involuntary manslaughter. This in the fatal shooting of a cinematographer on a New Mexico movie set. We take a look at a legal analysis of the case. NTD's Daniel Monahan brings us a closer look. You were, you were in the room when the lady when someone was, was shot? The gun, yeah. Helena Hutchins died shortly after being wounded during rehearsals on the set of the Western Rust in October 2021. Baldwin was pointing a pistol at Hutchins when the gun went off, killing her and wounding director Joel Souza. Legal expert Rachel Fizet reacts. To be honest, I'm a bit surprised. Fizet says the case has two possible angles. One, a workplace safety issue with liability on the people in charge of workplace safety. The other, a focus on the incident itself, which is what happened in this case. The actor has been charged with involuntary manslaughter. That can involve a defendant doing something lawful but dangerous while acting without caution. Fizet says the prosecution is not claiming Baldwin intentionally fired the gun knowing there was a live bullet, but rather that he did not act reasonably. He acted consciously disregarding the fact that firing a weapon uh, could cause death, and he did not take the precautions necessary prior to firing the weapon. The charge is a fourth-degree felony, punishable by up to 18 months in jail and a $5,000 fine under New Mexico law. The charges also include a provision that could result in a mandatory five years in prison, this since the offense was committed with a gun. My guess is that Alec Baldwin really wants to clear his name and believes that he has a good defense. Hutchins' death has influenced negotiations over safety provisions in union film crew contracts. The shooting also spurred other filmmakers to minimize risks by using computer-generated imagery of gunfire rather than real weapons with blank ammunition. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Moving on to a different topic now, President Biden visited California yesterday. He was there to survey damage from recent storms. The president went to Santa Clara County in the Bay Area and met with Governor Gavin Newsom. They toured Capitola Pier and Seacliff State Park in Santa Cruz County. They heard from affected residents and business owners who had their shops damaged or destroyed. Biden was briefed on recovery efforts. He promised federal assistance until rebuilding is complete. Here's what the president said yesterday. Maybe the thing that's most needed in these times is a sense of, of hope that everything's going to be able to be done, everything's going to be able to be fixed. Drenching rains, powerful winds, floods, landslides, but uh, you don't feel it till you walk the streets. We know some of the destruction is going to take years to fully recover and rebuild, but we got to re not just rebuild, we got to rebuild better. The National Weather Service says California averaged around 11 and a half inches of rain during the winter storms. Up to 15 feet of snow was reported falling over the three-week period in the highest parts of the Sierra Nevada. Over 500 FEMA and other federal personnel have been deployed to help with the emergency operations, and there have been at least 20 storm-related deaths.
U.S. agents in southern Arizona made what may be a large drug bust yesterday. They hauled in nearly 440 pounds of a powdered substance. They suspect it is a precursor for making fentanyl. Law enforcement had been conducting an investigation for several months. A series of suspicious packages from China were sent to a warehouse and residence over the same some time. The packages had no clear identification of their contents. HSI Tucson shared on Twitter that they served search warrants at two locations in the Midtown area of Tucson. The investigation is ongoing into who was involved in shipping and storing the chemicals. Whether they were part of a local crime group or an international drug organization is yet to be determined. The DAA calls fentanyl the deadliest drug in the nation, and for good reason, it is responsible for two-thirds of the more than 100,000 overdose deaths in 2021. Mexican drug cartels have made most of the illegal fentanyl seen in the U.S. in recent years, but investigators have seen signs lately that more producers may be trying to make fentanyl inside the U.S. And Republicans unveiled their full roster for the House Oversight Committee this week. We take a look at their picks and what they plan to investigate. And today's Jeremy Sandbrick reports. The House Oversight Committee for the 118th Congress will be chaired by Representative James Comer. Republican members include Representatives Marjorie Taylor Greene, Scott Perry, Andy Biggs, Jim Jordan, Nancy Mace, Byron Donalds, Lauren Boebert, and Paul Gosar, among others. The full House Republican conference still has to vote and approve the recommendations, which is seen as a formality. Democrats have yet to reveal their picks for the committee. The White House criticized Republicans for the appointments on Wednesday. One spokesman accused them of handing the keys of oversight to the most extreme mega members of the Republican caucus. He says they may be setting the stage for divorce from reality political stunts instead of engaging in bipartisan work on behalf of the American people. Republicans have accused the Biden administration of obstructing congressional investigations in the weeks leading up to the new Congress. The White House refused to answer Republicans' oversight requests in December. They requested documents on the withdrawal from Afghanistan, as well as the origins of the coronavirus before the end of last year. Special Counsel Richard Sauber called the requests constitutionally illegitimate because Republicans didn't yet hold a majority or control over congressional committees. House Republicans have laid out their investigation plans. First off, a probe into President Biden's handling of documents with classified markings. Next, a hearing on the Biden administration's border policies starting in February. They've also pledged to look into the business dealings of Hunter Biden to find out if there's any connections to the president. Other investigations will include the fentanyl and energy crises, pandemic relief fraud, the Afghanistan withdrawal, and the origins of the coronavirus. The GOP says now that they have the gavel, oversight and accountability are here. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. U.S. Representative Greg Stubbe was injured on Wednesday when he fell off a ladder while cutting trees on his Florida property. His office says he's now moved out of the ICU and is in stable condition. His injuries from the 25-foot fall are not considered life-threatening, and Stubbe is said to be making progress and in good spirits. The statement said that updates on his condition will follow. Stubbe was first elected to the House of Representatives in 2018 and just began his third term. He represents all of Sarasota and Charlotte counties and part of Lee County in Florida. U.S. wireless carrier T-Mobile said on Thursday that an unidentified malicious intruder breached its network in late November. Data on 37 million customers was stolen, including addresses, phone numbers, and dates of birth. 
T-Mobile said in a filing with the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission that the breach was discovered January 5th. Based on their investigations, the attack did not include passwords, bank account information, or social security numbers. T-Mobile says an investigation on the attack is ongoing, but the malicious activity has been contained. The company has been hacked multiple times in recent years. T-Mobile agreed in July to pay $350 million to customers who filed a class action lawsuit. That was after the company disclosed that personal data, including social security numbers and driver's license information, had been stolen. Nearly 80 million U.S. residents were affected. T-Mobile said at the time that it would spend $150 million through 2023 to fortify its data security and other technologies. And still to come, concerns are growing over the marketing of flavored cannabis products. Health advocates say young people are most at risk from marketing and advertising campaigns. And have you ever considered buying a tiny house off of Home Depot or Amazon? Is it actually cheaper? We spoke to an expert. Get the details after the break. Welcome back. Next, let's take a look at newly released body cam footage of first responders rescuing a woman from her car in an icy pond. The accident took place in Wisconsin. She's still in there? Yeah, water's up to her chest. They're fucking throwing the wet right now. It doesn't go down? I think it's at the bottom. This is not a very, this is not a very deep pond. Can you open that door at all? Here. If you can get on top, here, give a local news station obtained the footage a few days ago. The crash happened on the night of December 22nd during a snowstorm. The video shows one firefighter breaking her side windows and opening the driver's door. They use a rope to pull her out. The temperature was around minus 22 with wind chill that night. In those conditions, frostbite can set in within 30 minutes. And if someone is submerged in water, they could get hypothermia within just minutes. U.S. health officials are expressing a growing concern over the surge of flavored cannabis varieties. The main concern revolves around the packaging and marketing of cannabis products. They say even though they are aimed at adults, it could be appealing to youngsters. Entities Cost Temenas tells us more. New York legalized recreational use of marijuana in 2021. Although illegal for anyone under the age of 21, health officials are concerned that the packaging and marketing of flavored cannabis products could appeal to children and young adults. According to a 2019 CDC survey, over 20% of U.S. high school students reported using marijuana within the last month. I think one thing that's a challenge with the emerging cannabis industry is that it's rapidly evolving. Um, so we're reacting to the products that are in the market and trying to do research on what types of products are most popular among both youth and adults. The CDC says teenage marijuana use may harm the developing brain, leading to cognitive difficulty and reduced coordination. New York forbids any marketing or advertising of cannabis products that could be appealing to minors. But no official rules regarding the use of cartoons candy depictions and other marketing have yet been adopted. In addition, many cannabis strains have catchy names, often with references to candy or other sweet products. I think jurisdictions should consider curtailing the availability of candy and fruit flavors. Um, and 
overall, you know, we should be doing the kind of public health research that we need to do to understand what types of products are most appealing to youth. Medical use of cannabis is currently allowed in 37 states, with 21 allowing recreational use. Health advocates say the situation is reminiscent of previous marketing campaigns of tobacco products being aimed at young people. While local lawmakers often look to the federal government to set national standards, it's not an option for cannabis marketing because marijuana remains illegal at the federal level. Costa Menes, NTD News. Tiny homes are getting increasingly popular. You can now buy kits to build them off of Amazon or Home Depot, but are they actually safe and are they actually cheaper? I spoke to an expert. Joining me now is Bob Clarizio to answer some of my tiny house questions. He's a owner and CEO of a tiny house company called InShed. Good morning, Bob. Good morning. Well, it's great to have you because I am really interested in this topic and I want to start with the most basic question first. So what actually categorizes as a tiny house and how big can it get until, you know, it's a normal medium house? So we really can build up to about 600 square feet. Once we get above 600 square feet, it really classifies more as a mobile home. And, if, and really what makes the tiny house unique is its mobility. And once you get above 600 square feet, it becomes very difficult to move. So that's interesting to know um, because it's getting more and more popular, right? And one other thing that I'm always wondering about, is it actually cheaper to go for a tiny home instead of, you know, a starter home, for instance? That's a really good question. So I think it really depends on somebody's needs, wants and budget. I think that both options, whether it's a foundation home or a tiny house on wheels, you're going to get uh, what, what you pay for. And I think you can get the same square footage in each scenario. The difference is in today's market, uh, post-pandemic, there's a lot of people that never thought that they'd be working from home. And now that things are kind of settling in, the, the realization is, is that they're pretty much always going to work from home. So location isn't so important to people as it once was. So the mobility to be able to take your house where you want and be wherever it is that you want to be, um, I think is what makes it attractive for people to uh, purchase a tiny home. Now that's an interesting point, taking your house wherever you want. How does that look like? You just hook it onto your car or how does that work? Well, it all depends on the size. So just obviously the smaller it is, the easier it is to move across the country. But in most cases, it is as simple as hooking up to a pickup truck and just going right on down the road. I mean, that's a very fascinating idea. And you just mentioned, I want to go back to that about, um, you just mentioned the needs of somebody. Um, so I want to know, since you have the tiny home company, who are your customers? And, you know, what kind of, for what kind of people does it actually make sense to get a tiny home? It's a very uh, interesting and big question, but I'll break it down. Uh, we build for all sorts of people. Um, we build for hotel companies. There's a very high popularity now where people don't want to share the, the hallway space. Um, hotel companies are realizing that they can scale a, say, 40-unit um, hotel with no hallways, no elevators, no sprinkler systems, no infrastructure, and have 
40 rooms that are private for people to enjoy. And it really works out well for hotel companies um, to do things that way. So before I came into this interview, actually somebody asked me if it could be blown away by the wind. So here's my question. Is the structure as safe um, and what are the regulations like there? Yeah, so we build all of our tiny homes, uh, backyard offices, hotel units. All of them are built to the International Building Code. So it's no different in construction than, say, a traditional home. And we take precaution when it comes to things like blowing away in the wind. We have uh, anchor points along the unit that can be harnessed into the ground. So it's actually just as strong, if not stronger, than your traditional home. Well, that's very interesting, and I think that's an a important point for many. Thank you so much, Bob Clarizio with InShed. I appreciate it. No problem. Coming up, a thousand ancient Maya settlements, including over 400 cities, were discovered under the dense jungles in Guatemala and Mexico, and they were linked by highways. And Chinese Lunar New Year is approaching. An important part of the tradition is the lion dance. We have the story of an artisan in Malaysia who's keeping the skills of lion head making alive. That and more after the break. Good to have you back. A new high-tech study has revealed nearly a thousand ancient Maya settlements linked by what may be an ancient highway network. Let's have a look. The discovery found 417 cities hidden for millennia by the dense jungles of northern Guatemala and southern Mexico. LiDAR technology was used to shoot pulses of light into the dense forest, allowing researchers to peel away vegetation and map ancient structures underneath. Among the details revealed are possibly an extensive system of stone highways or superhighways. Around 110 miles of spacious roadways have been revealed so far, with some measuring around 130 feet wide and elevated off the ground by as much as 16 feet. From northern Guatemala to southern Mexico, the researchers have identified pyramids, ball game courts, plus significant water engineering, including reservoirs, dams, and irrigation canals. LIDAR captured 1,700 um, acres or kilometers squared of terrain, exposing all of the built features and their interconnections with hydraulic systems, with transportation networks, causeways, and residential zones, agricultural zones, and also um, how this cultural system was interconnected with the natural system. All of the newly identified structures were built centuries before the largest Maya city-states emerged. They date back to around 1000 to 350 BC. Fascinating. This weekend is the Chinese Lunar New Year, and you will likely be seeing line dances for the celebration. Traditional Chinese culture has a wide impact on surrounding countries. Today, we're going to meet a Malaysian artisan who keeps alive the skill of handcrafting lion heads used by dance troops. Large eyes on colorful, hairy heads watch Mr. Su as he tied a piece of bamboo onto a lion head frame. One among dozens, he and his team were crafting by hand ahead of Lunar New Year celebrations. Siu is a Malaysian of Chinese descent. 
He has spent almost 40 years handcrafting heads for lion dance troops across Malaysia. Lion dance is a tradition originating in China. It involves performers in costumes mimicking a lion's movements with the intention of bringing prosperity for the upcoming year. Although it is commonly performed during Lunar New Year, the number of traditional lion head artisans have dropped over the decades. Xiu said, only 10 were left in Malaysia and only five warehouses crafting the heads remained. But the artisan remains confident in the future of his craft. To me, it's a type of culture. It will never just disappear unless you give it up. Actually, I believe that even if you give it up, others will still preserve this profession. Despite its Chinese origins, Malaysian lion dance is recognized around the world for its intricate, often acrobatic performances. Over the years, students from around the world have flown in for Siu's teaching on the lion dance tradition. One of his students is a French national who comes to learn about the lion dance while finishing his thesis. Back home, his community has its own lion dance group. Coming here was a good occasion to also learn about him and uh, his, his own style of Hoksan lion dance. It's a really fierce style. Siu and his team made over 400 heads throughout 2022 and delivered them to clients in Malaysia and abroad. Wow, that is really cool. The artistry that they have with that handcrafted product. I agree, yeah, 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 for sure. And it looks like it takes a lot of dexterity to be a lion dancer. You up for the challenge? I'm not so sure. I think if it's the wrong person, there will be a lot of back pain involved. <laughs> yeah, so good teamwork with the two, right? Yeah. <laughs> All right, that's it for t this week, actually. Don't forget to write us at goodmorning at ntd.com if you have anything to share with us. Thanks for watching. Have a great weekend. I'm Evelyn Lee. And I'm Kevin Hogan.